service. Hey, everybody. It's your host, Nikki Lynette. Thank you so much for listening to About a Girl. In the coming weeks, we're delivering some of your favorite past episodes, paired with another great show from Double Elvis called Disgraceland. If you're not a listener yet, Disgraceland tells the insane stories of musicians through the lens of true crimes they've committed or have been carried out against them. In addition to stories about other cultural icons, whether they are actors, athletes, authors, or artists. Get ready for some About a Girl and Disgraceland episode pairings featuring Beyonce and Jay-Z, Sharon and Ozzy Osbourne, Carolyn Dennis and Bob Dylan, Valerie Bertinelli and Eddie Van Halen, Betty and Miles Davis, and more. All coming to you right here in the About a Girl feed. And if you want to chat about the show, hit me up on Instagram at Nikki Lynette. That's N-I-K-K-I-L-Y-N-E-T-T-E. Double Elvis. Content warning. Describing substance use and death. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Jimi Hendrix. There are few images in rock more iconic than Jimi Hendrix kissing his guitar, then lighting it on fire at the Monterey Pop Festival in June 1967. On his knees, eyes downcast with his elegant hands in praise, a shirt of orange frills echoing the flames as they rose from the Stratocaster. He was the shaman sacrificing in his electric church, evoking the gods to give him the powers to harness sound and move souls. The world heard his prayers, and he became the most famous rock star of his generation. But just as he burned up the world, so he burned his own life away. But this is not about Jimi Hendrix. This is about Linda Keith, the brilliant blues aficionado who devoted her life to making great musicians into superstars by reflecting their brilliance back and modeling how to live in confidence and independence, even when they couldn't see her spirit's freedom as crucial to their own success. This story is about a girl. A slow melody on the strings, then a stately upper-class gentleman's voice welcoming the listener. Good evening. This is Alan Keith, and welcome to another selection that I hope will please you. The voice welcomed BBC listeners every Sunday evening to a show called Your 100 Best Tunes that started in November 1959. The host was a well-respected actor of stage and screen, and although his clipped English pronunciation came to be legendary among listeners, he was first celebrated for his ability to pull off a particularly convincing American accent. A passionate music lover, Alan Keith chose the selections for his radio program himself each week based on his personal ideas of what kinds of music 
mainly light classical, he found to be the best. Alan Keith started this program when he was 51, married and living in London with his 15-year-old son, Brian Richard, and 13-year-old daughter, Linda. Although the children were given many of the same opportunities as young people, they were destined for very different paths. Brian was soon to read law at Oxford, then move on to Harvard Law as a fellow, and ultimately become a judge of the High Court of England and Wales. Alan's daughter, Linda, however, shared her father's passion for listening and took it in another direction. Smart and well-educated, in addition to being incredibly beautiful, Linda landed a gig in the mailroom of Vogue in London at age 17. There, she was discovered as a model. Linda helped define the it look of the 1960s, slim with bold features and striking dark hair. Hers was a chic world of bold colors, dramatic geometric prints and shockingly short A-frame cuts, and pixieish razor cuts that conveyed the era's newfound independence, confidence, and celebration of youth culture. Her style was matched by her enthusiasm for the bohemian crowd of young artists and musicians teeming through London. One such figure was her best friend Sheila Klein, who had begun dating Andrew Luke Oldham, a publicist and self-proclaimed hustler anchored in the Carnaby Street and Soho scenes. Andrew seemed to have his finger on every pulse and worked with all the hippest people, from fashion designer Mary Quant to producer Joe Meek. In the spring of 1963, Oldham had started managing a band. Although white teens playing rough-and-tumble blues were in no short supply in 1960s London, he thought this group had star potential. He envisioned a bad boy Beatles, and he set about styling the group with sharp mod angles and nudging their leader, Brian Jones, who looked like a bit of a blonde angel, away from the spotlight in favor of the more grotesquely handsome Mick Jagger. From there, he pushed them to appear more shocking and dangerous, to dress more wildly and grow their hair longer, more mangy than their contemporaries. It was in the middle of this transformation of the Rolling Stones that Sheila asked her best friend Linda to entertain guitarist Keith Richards at a record release party. Linda honestly wasn't thrilled with the assignment. She was not fond of the Stones' brand of blues. She had seen real-deal Black American blues musicians at folk festivals and club gigs in Soho and found the Stones' attempt lackluster in comparison. When she and Keith began talking, she was a bit shocked that in spite of the band's image, Keith was rather shy. To Linda, this was just more confirmation that Keith wasn't a real bluesman. He didn't have the rap, the sweet talk. Keith Richards, on the other hand, saw the woman walking to him in an instant, worldly, educated, stylish, and confident. All the things he aspired to be he fell in love immediately. And when they started talking about American blues, the conversation really began to swing. Linda saw another Keith emerge, and that was the guy she decided to go for. Over the next three years that they were together, the shy wallflower Keith came out of his shell, in part through Linda's encouragement, 
in part from his growing confidence in the music, and in part due to the increasing use of substances. No one in the Stones had been getting high at first. Their touring schedule was too rough for such mischief. But marijuana was soon part of that atmosphere, and eventually Keith Richards introduced Linda to two substances she was wild for, cocaine and LSD. Throughout it all, she insisted they only listen to real blues on her stereo. No Rolling Stones. The Stones had been trying to break in America since 1963, but it was grueling work. In the summer of 1966, they set out for their fifth attempt, bringing on Ike and Tina Turner as their support. They were due to arrive in June. Linda decided to head overseas early to check out the scene she'd heard was blooming in New York. One night, she and two friends walked into a midtown club that advertised their gigs in the Village Voice. The Cheetah Club was a chic remodel of one of the many turn-of-the-century ballrooms that had fallen on hard luck with changing tastes of the post-war era. The place was covered in bold cheetah print with a long bar and a stage ready for a crowd. But a crowd was not forthcoming. The band performing was Curtis Knight and the Squires, just one of many working R&B bands playing music to party and dance to. Curtis himself was a fixture of the Harlem scene, wearing a high pompadour and slick suit, while his squires wore matching brocade jackets that were staple looks of the genre. There were maybe 40 people there. Linda was making the most of a disappointing night out with her friends until one of the musicians in the band caught her discerning eye. Of course, a lefty guitarist will always stick out But it wasn't just that. He was good, Linda thought. Really good. The way his hands moved up and down on the neck of the guitar was something to watch, she later said. He had these amazing hands. I found myself simply mesmerized by watching him play. She took another look around, suddenly aware that this guy wasn't just good. He was phenomenal. This was a major star beaming charisma, skill, and creativity out of his instrument. And what's more, he was doing it in an uncomfortable, corny getup in a massive, empty hall where no one seemed to notice. It wasn't right. She convinced her friends to stay through the last set, and after it was done, she watched for a bit as the guitarist put his things away, then moved to sit alone at the bar sipping a drink. Linda and her friends invited him to the table to fawn over his amazing musicianship. He introduced himself as Jimmy and sat down to chat. He was charming, easy to talk to, and magnetic. She had found a real bluesman. When Linda met Jimmy, He'd already paid his dues to the world and to blues and was ready for a change. As a boy, Jimi Hendrix dreamed about numbers. A one, a nine, and two sixes. A dream that stuck with him and for no reason he could put his finger on became a source of hope, which was useful given that his childhood was marked by the traumas of poverty and homelessness with his father drifting in and out of his life his mother drinking, and his siblings separated. 
Jimmy wasn't able to get his hands on a guitar until he was 15. Immediately and completely enraptured, he practiced and listened for hours a day and formed a band that began gigging around his hometown of Seattle, Washington. He was playing in a band called the Tomcats, getting ready to record a song called Drive, 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 when some guys he knew pulled up in a sharp new ride, inviting him to do just that. Jimmy hopped in. They didn't cruise for long before the flashing lights pulled up behind them. A bunch of black kids in a fancy riot was what they called probable cause in 1961 Seattle. In this case, unfortunately, their suspicions were confirmed. The car was hot. Jimmy's claim that he hadn't known shit about the car's sudden appearance in his life was slightly undercut by the fact that he'd been picked up by police just three nights earlier in the exact same situation. In court, his public defender got him a suspended sentence when he told the judge his client was about to join the army. As the Tomcats were at what would have been Jimmy's first recording session, their former guitarist was on his way to basic training. Jimmy hated training and begged his father to send his guitar. Once he got his hands on it, he neglected all other duties. Eventually, his platoon sergeant filed a report reading, he has no interest whatsoever in the army. It is my opinion that Private Hendricks will never come up to the standards required of a soldier. I feel that the military service will benefit if he is discharged as soon as possible. He'd lasted one year. Alone and freed from his obligation to the government, Jimmy moved from his base into the Nashville rhythm and blues scene and got a job playing in backing bands for artists on the Chitlin circuit, a string of black venues across the American South. He played with legends of the day, Sam Cooke, Ike and Tina Turner, Wilson Pickett, but soon grew bored by the music and the constraints of strict band leaders. By 1964, he was touring with the Isley Brothers and then with Little Richard, whose style was an even greater draw to Jimmy than his music. Jimmy began to emulate his new boss's look, but there was only room in Little Richard's band for one flamboyant performer, and that was Little Richard. Jimmy jumped ship for a spot playing with Curtis Knight, with whom he got his first songwriting credits. He was back in New York, Harlem, with girlfriends dotted around the city who kept him alive and as happy as a struggling musician could be. His life and career were a bit of a mess, really, but he was hungry and driven, certain that the time was now. That spring, his childhood dream returned in a more concrete form. The floating numbers now promising something more concrete, that 1966 was going to be the year for him. After the gig at the Cheetah Club, Linda and her friends invited Jimmy back to her 60th Street apartment. Linda traveled with a case of 45 RPM singles she'd gotten from Woolworths, stacked with all her most prized possessions. She wanted to impress Jimmy with her seriousness as a blues aficionado. Which do you think is better, Delta or Chicago blues? Who pushed the form? What value is tradition? These were the kinds of questions the two would discuss for hours, much to the yawning dismay of everyone around them. 
as their conversations moved between music and politics to drugs, one of the party offered, Would you like some acid, Jimmy? He replied, No, I don't want any of that, but I'd love to try some of that LSD stuff. Linda realized that under his bluesman cool, he had a certain naivete. They all indulged, and Linda and Jimmy hung together, listening and talking long after everyone else gave up on their endless blues conversation. Throughout the night, they kept things platonic. Before a pair of music listeners as serious as them, listening was maybe an even more ecstatic intimacy than sex. If Linda was being honest with herself, she was intimidated. Do you have a girlfriend? She asked. Many, he laughed, and he talked freely about them. As naive as he had been about drugs, he was clearly well-versed in sex, if not romance, and in varieties of sexual experience in a way she simply could not fathom. What an about face. In London, she had shocked them all as a middle-class girl who dared hang out with the bad boys. But here she wasn't ready for a real bohemian love life. She was a middle-class girl, monogamous. As they listened through the night, Jimmy requested to listen to all of Blonde on Blonde, Bob Dylan's new double LP that had just come out. He couldn't really afford to buy new records often and was anxious to hear it. From side to side, the visionary album unfolded. So driving with Nashville's finest musicians, so deep, with Dylan's deft blend of humor and insight spilling over songs seamlessly blending folk, pop, and blues. Dylan, that blurred out sepia-toned Dylan on the cover. Jimmy loved everything about him, from his wild hair to his scowl to the foppish toss of his scarf. A sly trickster on every front, his idol. Jimmy played along on the guitar as they listened and confessed he felt constrained by the showbiz standards of Harlem R&B. He wanted to be free, even if it meant becoming a Judas to his genre, as Dylan had. In those hours between midnight and dawn, Jimmy spoke of the person and the musician he wanted to be, and Linda reflected back his truth with the wisdom of a woman who had seen and heard a lot of music, met a lot of great musicians. She was sure she could place Jimmy within that pantheon, not just as a player, but as a god among them. He had come to the apartment that night without so much as a guitar to his name. He borrowed one to play gigs. And he left with a promise. Linda would use all connections to help the world hear what she heard in Jimi Hendrix that night. Jimmy's playing was untouchable, but the rest of it needed some work. Linda set about to match Jimmy's charisma with a look and sound that would get him noticed on every level. When Linda met him, she thought his style was awful. He wore frilly Cuban shirts, bell-bottom trousers that were too short, and cheap, tattered boots. This wouldn't do, although he never traded the boots. She also encouraged him to figure out his hair on his own terms. Before, he had processed hair and wore foam curlers to bed so his hair would have rolling waves, like little Richard. But if Dylan can wear his hair wild, why couldn't he? And then there was the audience. 
If he hated the Harlem scene, why not follow the advice others had given him and try Greenwich Village? That's where the weirdos were, and they'd be into experimentation with the form. And last but not least, his voice. Jimmy didn't like the way he sang, and Linda had to constantly return to Dylan as the example of a musician who could give his all with technically limited vocal abilities. And so Jimmy put together a new band, Jimmy James and the Blue Flames. That's Jimmy with a Y. He hadn't started using the J-I-M-I spelling. And auditioned for a gig playing Cafe Wa, an earthenwalled cavern at the corner of McDougal and Mineta Streets in the village. Musicians were supposed to play five sets a day for $6 a day. $6! But, you know, Dylan had played there, and the crowd seemed to accept the band's fledgling attempts at blues rock more than the Harlem crowd ever would have. In his excitement at being hired, Jimmy left his guitar behind at the club. The next day, it was gone. The crowd was promptly thrilled as they watched Lefty Jimmy borrow a guitar from another band, turn the thing upside down and play it backwards, not skipping a beat and playing it better than any right-handed guitarist they'd ever seen. The next night, Jimmy showed up with a custom Fender Stratocaster Linda had loaned him from Keith Richards' collection. He took the stage wearing scarves and jewelry and by the end of the evening, he'd wowed the audience with every show-stopping trick he knew, from playing with his teeth to grinding his guitar like a lover. Linda thought the theatrics were unnecessary, but the white bohemian crowd ate it up. He played the blues, mostly covers, but he twisted the tunes and the guitar's tone itself with an originality unmatched in the fierce competition of the village scene. Jimmy James and the Blue Flames hit a stride just as the Rolling Stones arrived and began playing shows, meaning Linda had to pull double shift as girlfriend and fledgling Jimi Hendrix promoter. Linda invited her friend Sheila and Sheila's now husband, Andrew Lou Goldham, to the Y to see Jimmy, now spelled with an I, as another bit of flair. In retrospect, it's hard to imagine what Linda was thinking inviting her famous boyfriend's manager to a village hole in the wall to see an unknown bluesman who, in all probability, was her lover. It didn't go well. Andrew was already inclined to distrust the whole scenario and found Jimmy having an off night. His playing was unsteady, and he picked at his face from a fresh attack of acne. Andrew left, later saying he simply didn't want trouble with the stones, or any trouble at all which he thought he could see in Jimmy. She next invited Seymour Stein, who had just founded Sire Records, to a showcase at Cafe Agogo. Stein liked the band's few originals, but was put off when Jimmy's frustration boiled over and he smashed his guitar on stage. As Linda sat in anger, Stein sensed a fight on the rise and made a hasty retreat. Linda knew she could hear greatness in music, just like her father had, and she could shape great musicians into great acts like Andrew Lug Oldham could. So why wasn't it working with Jimmy? She was feeling frustrated until she ran into an acquaintance, Chaz Chandler, outside of a club. 
He was the bassist for Eric Burden's band, The Animals, and at 28, had a decade of experience in the industry. He said he wanted to start producing bands. Linda had just the person for him. Chaz agreed to come down and see Jimmy play at the Y. It was a mid-afternoon set. He walked down the sunny McDougal Street enjoying a milkshake and stepped down into the cave of the club just in time to hear the opening riff of Hey Joe. Jimmy had been tipped off that Chaz was coming. This time, he gave the set his all. Chaz's mind was blown, overblown apparently, as he spilled the milkshake on himself while listening. A month later, Chaz brought Michael Jeffrey to hear Jimmy, and the two of them agreed to become Jimmy's managers, but with the caveat, he would have to come to London, where Chaz knew the industry and scene, and where he was sure audiences would appreciate Jimmy's flamboyance and talent. Belinda could also sense that Chaz was trying to separate her from Jimmy. She was too strong and influenced. After all, Linda believed in pure blues and disdained crossovers, which Chaz thought would be key to Jimmy's success. And so, as much as Linda hated to admit it, for Jimmy to succeed, she would have to let him go with Chaz and Michael. He must go to England and maybe go commercial. Jimi Hendrix first heard the traditional folk blues song, Hey Joe, because Linda played him the Jim Rose version from a demo recording Keith had laying around in his hotel room. Hey Joe was the song that convinced Chaz that Jimmy was going to be a star. And a year later, it would be his first charting single. And even as Linda listened to Jimmy play it all those times, she must have worried that it was not just a great song, but as a narrative about a man going to shoot another man who messed around with his old lady, it was an omen. After all, Keith Richards was deeply in love with her, and he was a jealous guy. And indeed, Keith had been hearing about Linda going around with Jimmy in New York. After a Stones gig, Linda took the band to one of Jimmy's shows, and Keith noticed that the two seemed to be pretty close. Later, after he found out about the guitar, he allegedly showed up at the Y with a gun and dragged Linda away in anger, according to a girlfriend of Jimmy's. Anyone who knew Jimmy's reputation with women wouldn't believe he and Linda were just friends. And Keith was the kind of guy, at least with some thought, who might just kill another man for sleeping with his girlfriend. Linda couldn't take this kind of thing, she was not about to let a man tell her no. In late August, she broke it off with Keith. Soon after, Keith called Linda's father, Alan. He said Linda was abusing drugs, and he let slip another detail, that Linda was using drugs with a quote-unquote black junkie. He gave detailed instructions as to where Alan could find them. Alan flew unannounced to New York and showed up at the Cafe Agogo. Someone warned Linda that her father was there, and Jimmy jumped up to check himself out in the mirror so he'd be proper enough for an introduction. Alan did not care to meet Jimmy. He walked in, grabbed Linda by the arm, and forced her to leave. Alan had an order in hand making Linda a ward of the court, and she was going home. 
When she got back to London, Keith was waiting for her. She found the look on his face rather smug. Fuck off, she told him, and she meant it. Later, she'd admit that Keith's concerns might have been valid because she was, in fact, pretty deep into drugs. Even if, as a supposed American blues acolyte, Keith's decision to use a racist stereotype against Jimmy to get what he wanted was pretty ugly. From home, she wrote letters to Jimmy, care of the wah, and hoped for better times when he arrived in London. When Jimmy landed in London on September 24th, 1966, all he had was an overnight bag and $40. He got to his hotel in Hyde Park Towers and found that Linda had booked a room there too. After months of listening to his detailed exploits and romances, she was free. They could finally be together. Linda and Chaz Chandler had heralded Jimmy's coming. In a few days, he found himself a guitar and played an official gig at a place called Bag of Nails, to great excitement. A show remembered for the curses it elicited from the scene's best guitarists as they realized their inferiority. That wasn't his first London gig, though. On the night he got off the plane, Jimmy simply joined the house band at the Scotch of St. James for a jam, a common tradition among musicians of the time. He played blues numbers and people sat rapt. He came off stage to sit at Chaz's table and talked with Linda for a bit, but Linda found herself being edged further away from Jimmy, and she watched as he put his arm around another woman, Kathy Etchingham. He smiled at Linda. Linda gazed back. Fuck off, Jimmy, she shouted. Names were called, bottles thrown, a minor smash up. The next day, Linda wrote to the hotel in the baby blue jaguar Keith had given her and found Jimmy in her hotel room bed with Kathy. Linda whirled around the room, grabbing her shit. Jimmy and Kathy only dared to look up after they heard the jaguar's engine roar to life. Jimmy spent the next two years with Kathy, a DJ and veteran of the scene who knew all the right people and loved music as much as he did. Belinda was not gone from his life right away. For a bit, she took Jimmy around, introducing him to all the best shops and talking with him about his career. She still believed in his talent, his potential. He needed to be heard. One day, Jimmy even suggested that he and Linda become blood brothers. They cut their wrists and mingled their blood together. Linda was nervous, lest Kathy find them together. Eventually, she did sleep with Jimmy, but it was never serious. They lost touch as Jimmy became a star. Linda returned to her old scene and took up with Brian Jones, the delicate former face of the Rolling Stones who had become their truly troubled soul. It was in his flat that she overdosed in 1968, the police arriving just in time to save her. That was her second wake-up call. She best not tempt fate again. Those early times with Kathy in London were happy for Jimmy. His first album with his trio, The Jimi Hendrix Experience, provocatively titled Are You Experienced, arrived in May 1967. It set the UK music world on fire. And after the Monterey Pop Festival, Jimmy's fire was known throughout the US as well. 
By the end of the decade, he was the world's highest paid rock musician, and his version of the Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock planted a flag of countercultural righteousness, defining rock's political opposition to the Vietnam War without uttering a word. The soldiers were always on his mind, and in August 1970, he dedicated part of his set to them at the Isle of Wight concert. The same place where he changed a lyric in the song Red House into a confession, slipping Linda's name in and lamenting her absence. Two months earlier, he recorded an instrumental, Send My Love to Linda, though he never released it. Why was he remembering her so fondly now? Linda, true friend, champion. She only wanted the best for him. How could he have let that go? Things were spiraling for Jimmy. Touring, recording, the music industry, media, activists, fans, everyone and everything was hounding him. He became the poster child of chemical excess, with alcohol sending him into violent rages. He trashed hotel rooms regularly and was so difficult to deal with, those closest to him, who felt responsible for him, lost hair from stress. In 1968, Chaz quit, and Michael Jeffrey let expenses get so wild that people started questioning the whole enterprise. Through most of 1969, an epic year for him musically, Jimmy worried about a trial for drug possession, and Kathy left that spring when a drug dealer pulled a gun. Arrests, lawsuits, a paternity suit. Never satisfied with his music, Jimmy wanted to ditch his band, find something new, more experimental. But without someone like Linda in his life to help, he was losing his vision for the future. Linda saw Jimmy one last time in September 1970 as she was leaving a London club called The Speakeasy. He was with a girl she didn't recognize, a blonde ice skater named Monica. And Linda was there with her then fiance. They chatted a few minutes and then Jimmy handed her a guitar case. This is for you, he said. Taken aback, she said, you don't owe me anything. Even when she said she couldn't carry it home, he insisted, I owe you this. Linda took the gift and tethered it to the roof of her fiancé's tiny sports car. At home, she found in the old case a new Stratocaster to replace one she bought him at the beginning of their relationship. And she found something else. Letters she had written to him. Why did he keep them? And why give them back now? She never got an answer, because within a week, Jimi Hendrix was dead. He'd taken too many of the wrong pills, as he had before, but this time his body failed him. It was five days until his fourth anniversary of landing in London. Jimi Hendrix's early death was one of many tragedies marking the end of the era, and in time, his passionate fan base hungered for anything more. His career had been so short. Linda, for one, didn't want any part of this, and hesitated to speak about her relationship with Jimmy, or Keith Richards, or any of her old friends as they became legends. In 1983, she married record producer John Porter, 
who had spent the 1970s refining the next generation of the British rock sound, from Brian Ferry to the Smiths. He also produced serious blues records in the U.S., and his increasing renown there compelled the whole family to relocate, first to Los Angeles and ultimately to New Orleans, where they still live today. It wasn't until Keith Richards' 2010 memoir, Life, that the world learned that he and Brian Jones had written Ruby Tuesday about Linda. Richards had told Rolling Stone in 1971 that the song was about a groupie, but came clean about his deep hurt from this first love of his life, a woman he and Brian thought too independent for her own good, or at the very least, their own good. The song also captured another part of Linda, a part of her that music history thanks her for. She encouraged greatness in everyone she met. In it, the Ruby character pleads for her love to go after his dreams, lest they fade away unrealized. The love of dreams realized was Ruby's greatest hope, not her own love. Keith's life went beyond his wildest dreams, but sadly, Jimmy could only hold on to them for a short time before it all caught up. It could have been the other way around. It could have been any of them in those days. Perhaps the greatest music lover in Linda's life was the one who held on the longest. In 2003, Linda's father Alan announced his retirement from Your 100 Best Tunes. He'd been hosting the show for 43 years, all the way to the age of 94. He died only 12 days after the broadcast of his final show, inspiring and outpouring from listeners thanking him for shaping their love of music. Jimmy's biographers have charted all the details of Linda's brief but pivotal moment in Jimmy's life from interviews with others, as well as Keith Richards' firsthand accounts. Director John Ridley managed to engage Linda about her early years for a short BBC segment that formed the basis of his 2013 Jimi Hendrix biopic, focusing in part on her, titled, Jimmy, All Is By My Side. The true depth and nature of Linda Keith's intimacy with these great artists, these giants of rock and roll, will remain a mystery. Yet, the plain fact of her influence is undeniable and still largely unsung. The expressions of love from their yearning songs for her is a monument to her soul, and her own love for them lives in the silence she's maintained out of respect for their privacy. And this isn't about Jimi Hendrix or Keith Richards. This is about Linda Keith, a woman who recognized greatness and dedicated herself as a patron, as a muse, turning people on to the purity and power of the blues pushing artists to more authentic versions of themselves and supporting the development of the form from the 60s to the present. This is about a girl. About a Girl is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sattler for Double Elvis. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer. It was created by Eleanor Wells and hosted by me, Nikki Lynette. This episode was written by Daphne Carr. For sources used and more information, go to aboutagirlpod.com. The music is composed by Scott Janovich and Matt Tahini. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spreaker. 
The show is on Instagram at aboutagirlpod. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Lynette.